I've always found it interesting how a passing comment, like from my 11th grade teacher, could change the course of someone's life. So whenever uh, young people, if they, young person calls and asks me to come and see our, our studio and shadow, I always want to help them because I, I feel it's so important to take that time because it can be so impactful. Now that little bit of time could potentially be life-changing. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Mike Majuzak, a product designer, early stage investor, and founder of Smart Shape Design, an innovative product development and industrial design firm, which he founded here in Cleveland back in 1989. Smart Shape's beginnings were richly steeped in this world of industrial design, leveraging Mike's own background and experience in it. However, over time, Mike evolved the firm's competencies and capabilities to cover mechanical engineering, integrated manufacturing, and strategic product development across a plethora of industries like medical, consumer, IoT, packaging, digital, and many others. SmartShape's client list is a formidable and growing group of emerging brands covering Northeast Ohio's leaders like Avery Dennison, Gojo, Diebold, Sherwin-Williams, Nestle, and many others, including a handful of companies whose stories we've shared on Lay of the Land, like David Levine of Wireless Environment and subsequently Ring and Amazon, Chris Wentz of EveryKey, and Chelsea Monty-Bromer of SweatID. And as a result, their products are ones that many of us encounter on a day-to-day -day basis in the real world. And while we do delve into Mike's entrepreneurial journey, building smart shape in our conversation today, we actually spend just as much time unpacking Mike's literal walk across the United States and later walk across much of the rest of the world. Covering Mike's motivations for why he wanted to walk across the country and other continents the logistics of how he actually prepared and executed these walks, how he's balanced running his business while walking across the country, and some of the incredible stories he recalled from his adventures on the road. This was a really fun conversation that certainly plants the seeds of inspiration to embark on your own walking adventure and building an entrepreneurial organization that can support that kind of freedom. So I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Mike Machuzak after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. I thought a, a fun place to, to start our conversation 
could be knowing that you've embarked on this this walking journey across the world and also have founded and run a longstanding and innovative design studio what in your mind the you know re- relationship is between adventure and entrepreneurship uh, well I obviously entrepreneur any entrepreneurial um, endeavor is will turn out to be an adventure and more probably more so than 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 people realize when they start and I see a, a lot of uh, analogy between my adventure any adventure but particularly this big uh, adventure I have this hobby of walking around the world very analogous to to life in general career path uh, entrepreneurial venture and what I I mean by that is as I think about it uh, my, my planning this walk I, I could had never done it before I didn't know how much I could plan but uh, in hindsight now I know that it's really not possible to plan the whole way you don't know what's going to come up uh, what's going to happen the important thing is that to have uh, know where you want to go and then start so you you, you have a you know where you want to go you want to go somewhere or you want to achieve something is the, I think the really important thing and then the next most important thing is just to start you know figure out what do I do first all those things that come second third 50th hundred things you need to do it's really impossible to figure all those out in advance and you're just it's just a waste of time to try because it won't go uh, you know the path won't be like you imagined exactly hmm. so that's one big analogy so when I talk to young people some have asked me about that what I, what did I learn and that's one piece of advice I say is think think more about where you really want to go in life you know in your career in life you know with your business think spend more time thinking about that and less time trying to plan every step of it along the way without a destination without a you know, a vision of where you want to go. You just, you, you won't go anywhere, really. You just wander around and uh, end up wherever you are. Maybe that's, there's nothing wrong with that either. But if you do want to go somewhere, it's important to figure out where you want to go. And then to, to elaborate on that, I started out with the idea I'd walk across the country from New York, uh, from the Atlantic Ocean at New York to the Pacific Ocean at San Francisco. But uh, somewhere along the way in, in uh, Utah, I, I decided to instead go to Los Angeles. So I planned to walk uh, across country to San Francisco, I ended up in Los Angeles. And a lot of life and startup ventures go that way. But it's, you know, it's it, the end, end um, destination changed, but it was still having that, that, that goal in mind that, that set me on that journey. And, uh, I mean, accomplished it. Hmm. I mean, I, I definitely want to unpack, you know, the, the the walk itself and and your your entrepreneurial uh, journey with that. But what you just mentioned there brought this kind of detour <laughs> to mind. If you'll indulge me for a sec, there there's a a line, and I I can't remember which Joseph Campbell book exactly, but I, I was just trying to look it up. But I'll probably butcher it. it it's a line that uh, really hit me quite hard though when I first read it and it's something to the effect of you know it takes tremendous courage to do whatever you want and everybody else has a plan for you and I ignored those plans and I went into the woods and I read for five years uh, and that that actually formed the basis for the entirety of what Campbell's career would become and 
I think more and more you see this like anything when you start looking for something, all of a sudden it, it seems to pop up everywhere. And, and one of those things, at least that I've seen over and over again, is that the, the same journey or drive or inner compass versus external compass leading to tremendous success. And this inner compass idea is, is, is quite powerful and feels like an apt analogy uh, in the context of, of what you've done. So when you think about planning and the nature of what you've done from your path to industrial design to, to more entrepreneurship around that, how did you approach this in your own life? Well, in planning this walk, I, I didn't, I'd not, never done it. I didn't know what, what level I could plan. So I, I started to probably plan more than a little more than possible. And I quickly realized I can't plan more than a you know, few days down the road. And uh, it's not really, you know, I realized that's not really my nature to want to plan too far ahead. So for me, I, I really found that having a destination allows you to make decisions, you know, thousands of decisions, maybe a million decisions along the way. Every, every turn you make a decision, do I go this way or that way, which is going to lead me to where I want to go. And that's the same in walking across the country or starting, you know, founding and leading a startup to where you want to go. It's a, it's a constant everyday new unexpected challenges, decisions, and it's knowing where you, you know, what you really want, what you, where you want to go is helps to make each of those decisions that allows you to end up there. And in my life, I had some initial plans that were different from what I ended up doing. I'll tell you, I, I didn't really plan to start an industrial design or product design consulting firm. But in the end, uh, knowing what I really wanted to do, which was be involved in more scalable business, I ended up doing that now because I always uh, knew that's where I wanted to get. So when I saw opportunities to move in that direction, uh, you know, I took those turns to, to get there. So it's, I think it's that's where it's important to, to think a lot about what you really want in life, what you really want to go, what you want to achieve. Because then all the steps will, you'll find your way if you, if you know where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to play it back, I mean, it, it just, it sounds like the, the journey from where you are at any point to where you're trying to get. And it may, not, it may just not be a straight line. Uh, and it, it, it takes its, its turns, you know, throughout that as you, as you learn things and, and experience things. Can you take us through a bit, you know, your own journey and, where it deviated from a straight line and, and how it is that you came to be doing what you're doing? As a young child, I, I was very project oriented, always building things, uh, designing and iterating in my head. So industrial design was a really good fit for me. But industrial design was not a well-known profession at the time when I was in high school and making a college decision. I had never heard of it. I wasn't aware of it. It was a high school art teacher, Mr. Schooley, 11th grade art teacher, Mr. Schooley, told me about industrial design. He said it was like architecture of products. It was a good mixture of artistic creativity and engineering. And I thought that that fit me well. I'd been considering architecture because it lent itself more to design creativity maybe than engineering, I thought. So I looked into it and I decided to pursue a, a career in industrial design. I, I wrote letters to an one or several industrial designers asking how they liked their their work. And my father took me to meet an industrial designer in the area. And it looked like a lot of fun to me. So that that's how I got the idea to pursue industrial design. 
and I then went to study industrial design in school and graduated with a degree in industrial design and took a job offer in the Detroit area. That first job out of school was at a the second oldest product design firm in the country, a top firm with impressive clients. They did work designing the interior of the space station, for example. And my first project on my first day of work was designing the front end of a metro train. So I was doing sketches of what the train would look like. And today it looks like those sketches. That was around 1985. I really, I really enjoyed that job. I worked there for a total of four years and a lot of interesting projects. I learned a lot from the very talented people about designing products, running a product design consultancy. And one thing I learned is that I did not want to start a product design consultancy. <laughs> and it's, it's a good business, uh, you know, very interesting work. I've made a good living at it. But it seemed to me that it, it, it isn't very scalable. You know, you're essentially selling hours. And if you, you only have so many hours in a day, whether it's a hundred hours or thousand hours to sell. And if you don't sell those on that day, then you can't put them on a shelf to sell later. So I was, I was definitely interested in the scalable kind of business rather than another product design firm. But while I was here back in Cleveland, starting to figure out, you know, what I would do, what kind of scalable business I would start, I did some freelance product design to make a living. This was around 1989. And soon I became busy with more work than I can handle and hired, hired a few designers to help. And by the early 1990s, I found myself alternating between looking for more good people to help do all the work that we had and uh, looking for more work to keep all those talented people busy. So obviously, I ended up owning a product design consultancy. Despite your best efforts. It's not what I planned originally, but actually it worked out well because it, it put me in a good position to participate in many highly scalable businesses, the kind of opportunities which I originally you know, was, was seeking. So Smart Shape has been, uh, it's been a fascinating journey, not what I planned on doing, but we've worked on with so many interesting projects, some of the best companies in the world, you know, interesting projects that I personally like, like EV chargers and uh, life-saving medical devices. That's very satisfying. And we work with a lot of startups and small companies that are doing some of the most leading edge stuff, some of the really more innovative uh, stuff is with the uh, startup companies that we work with. And over the years, we've in, we've invented many new products, uh, produced ideas and designs that resulted in numerous patents. It's it's just uh, really interesting work. So even though I wasn't wasn't what I the path I had planned, it's it's been a, a fun journey. Like uh, went really fast so far. Yeah, and I think some of those products that you've worked on would be a, a great starting point to understand, you know, what the actual work that you do at, at SmartShape looks like in practice. I know uh, David Levine, who was, who was on Lay of the Land not too long ago, kind of went over in detail wireless environment and their journey to Ring and subsequently Amazon or something like Sweat ID with uh, Chelsea Monty Bromer out of, out of Cleveland State. How, how do you, you know, diagnose the, the work to be done and actually go through the, the product development process? What, what does that look like? Well, it always starts with a design thinking process of really understanding the, the user, the need and, and uh, building from there. We've worked on so many 
projects over the years with companies that come to us with a, with a problem that they've already often identified the problem. In some cases, though, we're, the companies will come to us and they will uh, have a category in mind and they'll ask us to uh, help figure out what products they should make. And um, so we'll, we'll go through a process of doing some, we'll arrange some uh, kind of user research so that we can uh, observe people doing what they do, whether it be in the OR, observing medical procedures or observing how people clean their kitchen or bathroom and carpets. And then we'll look for unmet needs and opportunities to invent new products and features to, to, to meet those needs. Uh, that's what it's all about. And, and companies come to us with different, at different stages of that. Sometimes they've already identified the need and they, they've identified a, a product to make either because of a reaction to competitors or a change in technology. For some reason, they've identified a, a new product to make and they'll come to us to help um, optimize the design of that product. And it's the same kind of iterative process of diverging to diverging to consider all the possibilities and then converging on the best possibilities and, and then testing and just a process of iterating to um, learn kind of like the, the, the journey. You learn each step of the way, you, you learn and test uh, your ideas and keep adjusting to, to move in the right direction. In a minute, first I'll give you a background, just the overall kind of scope of scope and breadth of our, our work. Perfect. Since we started 1989, 35 years ago or something like that, almost, we've designed we, hundreds of consumer products, like we've designed hundreds of Rubbermaid products alone and many other products for Hefty, Clorox brands, other, other well-known consumer brands. We've designed juvenile products like baby car seats and strollers for Fisher-Price, Graco, Durrell, and the largest juvenile product company in the world now, Good Baby, a Chinese company, they they learned that we were behind a lot of what they viewed were the most innovative new designs. So they sought us out to help them innovate. We've designed vacuum cleaners for Kirby, Hoover, Eureka, power tools for products for Remington and DeWalt, technology products for Bosch, ABB, Honeywell. We've designed healthcare products and medical devices. It's become the largest uh, area of work for us. And we, we find that particularly satisfying because we're developing products that, you know, will improve and, and potentially save lives. We, we enjoy that more than designing a new Happy Meal for McDonald's or something. <laughs> so I, I feel a little embarrassed bragging about all these things, but it gives you a kind of a sense of the scope of our experience and that cross-pollination of all the different things we do that gives us a big advantage when we're helping a, a startup company like Chelsea's uh, Sweat ID. We bring a lot of different knowledge from different product categories and uh, ideas to the table. Most of that work for large companies I mentioned, that's all fee-for-service work. We're hired to help uh, invent new products and features for those clients, and then they own all the patents. But then we do a lot of work in the, uh, where we participate now in scalable ventures where we'll invest in early stage companies like David Levine's wireless environment. We invested in that company in the beginning and helped design their first product and a whole series of products after that. That was a 
really uh, early in our venturing into this business model of in investing in companies that we knew we could help elevate to the next level. Right. And that's the, that second path is the way to combat your aversion to there's only so many hours in the day that you can sell and, and start to be a part of what you think of as more scalable business, right? Right. That's how I ended up, uh, you know, I, I tell you, I didn't, I didn't intend to start a fee for service design consultancy, but I ended up, you know, that happened and no complaints because it's been really fascinating work all along the way. But ultimately now I found a way to end up where I, where I wanted to go. And that is in these more scale, highly scalable ventures. You know, one interesting thing about that, that example of with David Levine is, um, any kind of product, if I were to take an idea and create a stand up a company around it, you'd have to, so many things need to be do, done well. And even if it's a great idea, so many things need to be done well for that startup company to succeed. And you need a team of people doing all those great things that can be done to, to uh, get those stand up a company and hire those people. We also need to hire uh, someone to really lead it and see it through the good times and bad times. And that's where I think it's difficult to hire somebody that will stick through all the really rough times and uncertainty and dark days that a, like a founder will, you know, so it takes someone like you know, David Levine, you know, he pivot, he, he found the way he, you know, he'll find that path to success, even though it's, it can be elusive. I have faith in, in Chelsea, you know, she's leading sweat ID. Uh, who are, we're helping now. And I, I enjoyed your interview with Chris Wentz, uh, founder of Every Key. There, there are so many, um, so many difficulties and dark times that it really takes that determination that someone like a, a founder like Chris Wentz, he will, he'll find a way. He will not quit. He will not give up or bail or jump ship when, when things look bad. And I think it's hard to hire somebody that has that kind of, that kind of determination. That's one of the advantages I see in investing in these early stage companies where they have a, an innovative idea, a good product market fit, and a good team. But it's that dedication to persevere that is really one of the big keys to uh, chances of succeeding for these, these startups. We're still doing the work with the big global companies developing their products, but that's all fee-for-service work, which is, is good work. We learn a lot and enjoy it. But some of the most exciting uh, things are happening with the, these startup companies. Yeah. I mean, some, something you mentioned there that it, it just seems to be one of the the, the patterns that I keep coming back to you from the, the whole entrepreneurial journey is just this notion that the idea that a business is is founded on is very rarely the idea that the business ultimately succeeds with. And it you you have to kind of make your way through and persevere and and just iterate until uh, you know, you figure out the the right solution to the question. And the question is what normally stays the same, but the you know, your approach and tact to answering it might might change. Right. They know, the founder knows where they want to go, what they want to achieve. And that may be to end up in San Francisco. They may end up in Los Angeles and that, you know, walk from New York to San Francisco. And, and somewhere along the way, they 
change and, and decide to go to San Francisco, to Los Angeles. It isn't where they planned to start originally, but they discovered a better place to go. And they just uh, made all these decisions along the way to that, arrive at that success. Which is a, a wonderful seg to talk about, I think, your your walk and, and journey. So at, at some point in you know, the evolution of, of SmartShape, there must have been this spark of inspiration to embark on on this journey that would set you off walking, you know, across the country and, and ultimately the world. And I, you know, I think a lot of people have, you know, big, crazy ideas, <laughs> but very few people, you know, act on them with the, with the courage and the determination to, to make it a reality. So at, at what point in your journey did you feel this inspiration and, and what was that inspiration? Just kind of, can you share the whole thought process that unfolded behind your decision to make this leap into a, a grand adventure and in how you balance that with, you know, continuing to, to run your, your company. Yeah. Well, it, that was an evolution in itself, how I, I got this idea. And I, I had to think back and, and try to figure that out myself. And I think it, it was a combination of, of things. I've always loved adventure. I read a book by Bill Bryson, uh, a walk in the woods about walking the Appalachian trail. And I remember just thinking that was so wonderful. I just wanted that to just get up and go and keep going. I just love that and figure, solve all these problems along the way. That really appealed to me. And then I think watching Forrest Gump, I remember thinking that's awesome. Just, you know, just keep going. And of course he didn't need any water or anything somehow, but I, I just, it just really appealed to me. And, and, uh, I started running some marathons. I was never a fast runner, uh, a competitor, but I could, as long as I'm going slow enough, I could just keep going. And if it seemed that if I'm walking, it seemed I could just walk forever. I remember I was driving through Colorado on a ski trip and, uh, been there a number of years. And I'm always, whenever I'm driving through the mountains to the ski resorts, I'm always looking at the mountains, wondering, thinking, wow, I bet this really interesting. Uh, all the old mining towns and camps and along the way, you know, from, from, you know, century ago, centuries ago, I always thought it'd be fascinating to just see the parts of the world that we drive right past on freeways or fly over. So I was, it was in Colorado as with a friend on, on one of those ski trips. And I mentioned that I had this idea of that I, I want to do a forest gump and run across the country, you know, largely because I want to see all these places in between. So I, we're sitting there having something to eat and I was doing the math of if I go this many, this pace and this many hours a day, I could do it in, I thought three months. And uh, at that time I had a team that was able to really handle our business, uh, handle our clients. I've got an excellent team now that's able to handle clients uh, better than, better than me. Whereas 12, 13 years ago, the business was a, you know, I had a really talented team, but they were a more junior team and everything was sort of dependent on me. So I started the process of building that team. And around 2016, I felt like I had that, that team and I could do the unimaginable. And that is get away for more than a, a couple of weeks from my business. So I, I, I told my team they received it well. And this was a great experiment and sort of a launching of this mindset that I really want the business to 
really want to build a business, not build a job for myself where everything depends on me. So I, it was 2016, 2016 I, I decided that I'm going to walk from, I'll start in New York and I'll walk to San Francisco. And I tried to research and plan, but then I quickly learned that there's just, you know, a million, there's too many places. I can't really figure it all out. So I just went to New York. I uh, stepped, went in the uh, Atlantic Ocean at Coney Island Beach and jogged up to Manhattan that day. It was, it was St. Patrick's Day that I started. So I uh, celebrated in Manhattan. And then the next morning I started walking it off to uh, Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, that was, yeah, that was um, most of the planning. Along the way, I had to figure some things out. One of the things I, I, key things I learned about myself was that not to let unwarranted fears deter me. There were things that I was worried about mm. along the way, like when I was in, you know, Colorado or, or in the, the Appalachians, I was worried about bears. So I thought maybe I need bear spray, but it was uh, too big. And I, you know, there really aren't, there aren't any, anything but black bears and, and they're, as afraid of me as, as I am of them generally. So things that, and, and the statistically it's very low risk. So things that I was worried about that would deter some people, I thought, thought about them and they really, it's not warranted. So when I got to Colorado, I was um, asking somebody about rattlesnakes going, well, I was going to, I was preparing to go through the desert and I was thinking about rattlesnakes and scorpions and, asking somebody about that. And they, you know, they told me how to, you know, put my shoes inside of my tent when I'm camping in the desert. Don't sleep in a, you know, a, a wash where a flash flood could come at a uh, moment's notice, things like that. And I asked this one guy, so what about cats? Aren't there big cats to worry about out there? And he said, yeah, but don't worry about that because you, you won't see them coming until they're, you know, biting your head off. <laughs> that was comforting. But so I, I found that things that I had uh, worried about were mostly unwarranted. Um, the biggest, the biggest thing I worried about was going through the desert and need, and drinking water, having water to drink because I would go 80, 90, 100 miles without a town. Uh, in Colorado, I, I could go 80 or 90 miles in the Rockies and I had a, a filter that allowed me to drink water from a stream. But in the desert, I wouldn't find any towns or streams or, you know, any water source. So that was my biggest fear. I imagined myself, delir like in the movies, delirious and staggering right, right. in the hot sun. And they would find my bleached bones months later. <laughs> that was my biggest worry. But I got a cart. I needed to carry 50 gallons of water to get through two days, like a... 80 or 100 mile stretch. So I got a cart in Utah that allowed me to pull the water, 50 pounds of water, plus my camping tent and sleeping bag and that. That made it no problem. As long as I had the water, uh, I went through Death Valley in mid-July and it was in the 120s Fahrenheit oh my God. every day. That's really terrified me. I was almost thinking maybe I should get a bicycle when I was thinking about it. In hindsight, that really isn't a problem as long as you have the water. And I think entrepreneurial journeys are a lot like a lot of problems seem insurmountable, but if you just, you know, address them one at a time, you can figure everything out. That was kind of my, my thinking thought process, uh, just figured things out. And in hindsight, all the problems, things I worried about were not really worth worrying about. 
I ended up in Santa Monica Beach near Los Angeles. I jumped in the ocean. I, it was an amazing feeling. I thought that I had, I thought that I was finished. You know, that's all I wanted to do was cross the United States uh, from ocean to ocean. So I remember that feeling when I was swimming in the Pacific. I'd lost about 25 pounds just because I burning so many calories every day. I couldn't eat enough. It was an amazing feeling. I loved it and I thought I was done. But after some months went by, I kind of missed that adventure. I missed being on the, I missed that journey. So I decided where else should I walk? And I thought about some ideas and then I decided, well, I'll just continue around the globe. So I walked across, uh, in the years after that, I walked across Japan, Korea, and almost finished walking across China until the pandemic uh, came along and I, I couldn't get back in to finish that. So uh, instead, I decided I'd always planned on jumping in the Atlantic Ocean as my finish line. That's where I started in the Atlantic. So I was going to finish by jumping in the Atlantic Ocean since I couldn't get back into China to continue for two and a half years. I decided I would stop waiting and, and go start at the finish line and uh, walk backward toward China. So uh, since last summer, I walked across Ireland, Portugal, Spain and most of France, or half of France, and that's where I'll, I'll go back sometime before the winter and continue from France to Italy and Switzerland and continue my journey. Something I really enjoy as a, an unusual hobby, but I love it and I look, look forward to getting back, you know, getting back to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. I, I can only imagine as you especially widen the, the aperture from just walking across America to the, you know, the, the, the entirety of, of the world. Yeah. As you, as you recalled your adventure there, you know, I, it's a bit of like a fast forward, obviously from starting in the Atlantic to arriving in Colorado to, <laughs> to getting to California. Um, and, and then, you know, the adventures beyond, but I'm just very curious, like what, what does a, a day on the, the road look like? Yeah. I think you, you, you touched on, you know, how you dealt with some of the, the fear but, but how do you manage the unpredictability that comes with such a journey? How, how did you structure your, your routine during walks? Does, is routine even a, a concept that makes sense in this journey? Yeah, it, 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 there is sort of a routine, which is I, I get up in the morning, usually like just around sunrise, sometimes before if I had a you know, I plan to go a long distance and uh, walk all day and uh Usually didn't plan much. I figured I could find things along the way, but there would be some times where I had to plan a little, you know, bring water or, as I mentioned, had to plan a little in some areas. But, uh, a typical day had kind of changed over in a few ways over the journey. In the beginning, I had this idea that I would walk 40 miles a day would be my average. And I was trying to, I was trying to do that in the U.S. I was targeting 40 miles, but I'd have to, find a place to sleep every day. And sometimes that would be at 35 miles, sometimes 55 miles, uh, you know, I'd walk. So I had to kind of figure my route on where I could sleep. And um, that was the biggest challenge walking across the, the country. And I, when I got to Colorado, that be, became big stretches, as I mentioned, uh, 80 to 100 miles without any towns. So I, I bought a tent in Colorado in Denver area, started to camp from there to the Pacific in those big stretches. Um, but now my journey is changed in a couple of ways. One is that I 
40 miles is um, too far because it doesn't allow enough time for taking a shower and getting some to eat and getting enough sleep. Just uh, too many hours of the day spent walking. And I walk slow because I take a lot of pictures and look at my map and such. Only if I'm running late, uh, I'll, I'll jog or run some just to speed it up. So now I try to, now my target is more like 35 miles. My average over the whole journey so far is, is 36 miles, I think. So now I, I, I plan a day that's, um, allows me to get something to eat in the morning and uh, I'll eat along the way if I find something to eat, some food or store. Another change is that um, I don't worry about all the planning that I used to work, worry about the little bit of planning that I did in the beginning. I don't even worry about that very much. I used to plan uh, every day. I'd figure out where am I going to sleep in the U.S. I'd figure out where am I going to sleep and I'd you know, search around for a town where I could find a B&B or like I said, out west, I, I had a tent and I would carry that with me really all the way to Pacific. Nowadays, I don't want to carry a tent to cross Europe um, just to, to need it every, say, every once, uh, once every 10 days or two weeks. So I just go and take what comes. And, and now I'll, if I don't find a place to sleep, I just walk all night or I'll lay down and sleep in a, an orchard or on the edge of a farm or in the woods and take a nap and get up and go. And things I used to be probably be horrified by that idea of sleeping outside without a tent. Now I, you know, you, you do it and realize that all the things that I worried about before are not really worth worrying about. It's, it's really not such a challenge. Yeah. There's a, there's a deeper wisdom in that. I, I feel. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that maybe I should have worried about, or maybe I really didn't need to worry about and uh, give you an example. In my last walk, Maybe a month ago, I was walking in France. I had crossed Spain on the Camino de Santiago and entered the Pyrenees Mountains and along the Spanish-French border. And I was walking through these mountains, beautiful mountains, and you could see some snow caps uh, on some of them. One night I was walking uh, all day and I, I planned on reaching a small town around 9.30 p.m. And I didn't, there, I pass opportunities to sleep at like 5 or 6 p.m., but I, I didn't want to stop, you know, on a long summer day. I didn't want to stop that early. So I, I walked to the, the last little town that I would pass through that evening as I walked through the, the mountains. And in that little mountain town, there was one hotel that showed up on the internet I could find. And, and I was betting on that as my plan A. So I get in there around 9.30 and I went to that little hotel and, uh, with my French translation, I uh, asked if they had a room and they, they apologized and told me, I think they had some kind of a event or family wedding or something. They didn't have any rooms. It was probably a five or six room hotel. So they told me they didn't have any rooms. I decided, well, I'm going to walk. My plan B is I would just walk all night. So I walked all night through the mountains and there were areas where the, 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 there were clearings and the sky was, you know, the moon was bright. I could see clearly where I'm going. And there were other uh, areas where I'm in a dense forest and I really couldn't see anything, barely see the ground. So I use my phone just to get a little bit of, make sure I don't step in a big ditch or off a cliff. So I use my phone to walk through the woods. Then eventually the, you know, the sun starts coming up and that's when I, I would really get tired. And I was looking for a place that on that particular night, I was looking for a place to lay down 
in the in the leaves, but it had rained that afternoon, and the ground was all wet. The weeds were all wet. The grass was wet. The even the the leaves were all wet. So I was looking for a rock or something where I could lay down, yeah, and stay dry. And then I heard off to my left. I heard some sticks, like a sound of footsteps, like sticks breaking. It sounded like a person walking. You know, it was too big to be a deer. I saw a lot of deer there, and. So I looked to my left. I didn't see anything. I didn't look too close. I kept kept going. Then I heard these loud roaring sounds, like uh, and and uh, a series of those, and then quiet, and then I'd hear another series of those roars. And over about a course of a half a mile, I heard that you know, series of those about three times uh, off to my left. And I eat all the while. I was thinking, wow, that's really interesting. Wonder what that could be. And I was thinking. What kind of what kind of animal would make that? Is it, do they have bears in Pyrenees? And I'm thinking I'm in France, so I'm not in Alaska or you know Wyoming where I'm going to get eaten by a grizzly or something. So I'm I didn't worry about it at all. And uh, a couple hours later, I was coming to a little small town, and I got on internet and I googled uh, wild animals in the Pyrenees, and all of the all of the search results were about brown bears. How uh, they Used to be prolific there, and then they were almost extinct. But they, they they brought some back from Slovenia, the same species, and they were protecting them, and and they were really multiplying in numbers. And then I was uh, really curious, so I looked on uh, YouTube and uh, looked up what does a brown bear sound like, and they it sounded exactly like what I had heard. So then I was uh, I was really glad that I didn't uh, encounter one. And had I known that at the time, I would have been terrified. I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even that, the bear was probably telling, warning me to stay away from it. Or it may have been, it may have been telling its friends what was on the daily breakfast special. But I didn't know, so I, I wasn't uh, afraid of it. But, you know, had I known, I probably would have worried more than necessary about it. So that day I arrived in a, a by noon, I I kept walking. I arrived at, at noon and uh, at a little town that had a, a hotel. It didn't show up on the internet, but I asked around. I found a hotel and I got in, took a nap at 2 p.m. And then I slept a long night. And the proprietor, I asked in the evening, I said, you know, should I, can I pay now? And she said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I told her I was walking. I'd walked to, from Portugal and she was born in Portugal and she was, I think, touched by that. And she wouldn't take uh, my money for the stay. It was a beautiful old hotel from the 1860s in this little town. Three rooms, all they had, and and I was their only guest. Made a big, uh, beautiful breakfast just for me. And I wrote in their little book, uh, you know, their signature book about my experience and how much that bed meant to me, uh, you know, having walked all night. And then she said that she wouldn't take any money. It was a gift. And I said, are you sure? Oh, this is so, you know, this is worth a fortune to me to, to stay here. And then uh, she didn't know that I'd walked all night, but I told her this was really meant a lot to me. It was worth a, a fortune. I, she wouldn't take money. And so I came downstairs. I was going to leave money on the dining room table, you know, like twice as much as the rent because, or the, the rate because I just really appreciated her generosity. But she saw the money in my hand and she refused to accept it. And she says, no, 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 it's a gift. And 
And then she saw that my backpack had split open and I was trying to tie it up with straps to hold it together until I could get to a big town and, and buy a new one. And she brought out a, a backpack, same size as mine, an old, an old backpack that she didn't need and gave it to me. That solved my problem, a big problem that I had that night. Wouldn't take anything. So uh, just a wonderful uh, experience. And I met, it was Anna from Portugal who grew up in France and her husband, Jesus from Spain. They were just so uh, kind of like angels to me. Yeah. So that was a, that's one day in the life. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a special story. I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine having traversed such a diversity of of terrain and cultures and people. You know, I'm sure you have a whole you know repertoire of stories to to pull from. I guess if I could, you know, knowing that we'll not even get to a small sliver of them, but in your you know journey across America, you you mentioned you know some of the the impetus was getting to explore the the towns and, and cities and people that, that maybe, you know, we, we only think about outside the box of whatever vehicle it is that we're in at the moment as, as we pass them. What, what did you find like the, the fabric of America looks like on the ground? And, and like, how does it differ from, from maybe our perception of it and any other kind of, you know, memorable experiences in, in that light? Yeah. Well, the, the, just physically, the, the country is fascinating how over the, you know, not that long a history, we, we went from stagecoach stops. You know, a lot of those towns out west are, are originally were stagecoach stops and then they became railroad towns and new towns popped up at certain locations along the railroads. And then all that was bypassed by two lane highways where uh, old motels popped up and, and then that's bypassed by four-lane highways, and then in many cases, even bigger highways bypass all of that. So a lot of our country is bypassed now, and it's just a point A to point B. And and what used to be, people used to pass through what's in between, you know, in stagecoaches or trains, and then even early automobiles, but now all that's bypassed. So that's an interesting to see this sort of all over this um, small towns that's just, no one goes there unless they you know, live there or, or have a reason to go there and they don't drive through there anymore. And uh, that was an interesting um, journey for me. And then the people there, really nice people, really all around the world. I, I met people that were really nice, never had a, a problem, really. Uh, there were some areas where I felt uncomfortable and even jogged through some places to get through faster. Yeah, uh, And there were some places that, uh, I might have felt uncomfortable if I were an immigrant or uh, and not a white guy walking through. But ultimately, my experience is people were people were nice to me and um, everywhere, United States and and uh, also around the world. In the U.S., people, I think, thought I was a homeless guy and and uh, maybe a half a dozen times people tried to give me money. And I would I would say, no, I'm I'm fine. I'm I'm good. You know, I was like a, I was like a homeless guy with credit cards in my pocket. <laughs> Actually, that was an interesting part of it was to be able to live that way. And I, I remember walking into a city and I saw a homeless guy. Once I passed a homeless guy and he, he had the same kind of cart that I had. And it was a stroller I was pulling that, that I could pull with a strap around my waist like a chariot. He looked at me and he said, that's what I'm talking about. And we were like kin, <laughs> you know, and uh 
And then I saw, I'd see a homeless guy in a city, you know, splashing water and a fountain trying to splash water in his face. And I, I could just feel sort of uh, like I could relate to those people because I was, uh, you know, they're out there, you know, getting by. And uh, that's kind of the way I was. Uh, uh, although, again, I, I, you know, I had credit cards in my, my wallet. It was an interesting perspective to be perceived differently. I remember walking into a small town in uh, maybe Kansas where I walked into a store in a little town and I was uh, told I needed to leave my backpack at the uh, front of the store. They didn't trust me. Just the way I looked, they didn't trust me. I was all dirty and, you know, worn, faded looking clothes. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of a lesson in, you know, how people... uh, treat people based on their perception. In hindsight, I was thinking I could have told her I could buy this damn store. But, uh, you know, I, I, I understood. I, you know, I just, uh, people have, uh, perceptions, uh, about, um, about you based on how you look. And I looked like uh, a homeless guy. I wore the same pants from New York to Los Angeles, some like running pants, and they were all really sun faded and worn looking and, so it was an interesting to to experience life sort of from that, you know, perception, even though, again, I, I no self-pity because I, you know, I, I had a I could check into hotels anytime I wanted to. Yeah. You know, with this experience, how has it influenced your your plans, your ambitions for the future? You know, the, the, what's happening with with SmartShape? What has, you know, having embarked on this and, and continuing to to go on these journeys, how has it influenced what you would like to do? Well, it, it definitely set in stone my desire to always work towards building a team that makes the building, uh, the business self-sufficient rather than a business that uh, depends on me. I achieved that enough to be able to go on, start that journey. And now it's, it's uh, become even stronger in that, in that way. But this is really uh, cemented in my mind. That's the only way I want to live. A lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, um, so at some, some points are, have a business that, that you, you own a business and it also owns you. Going on this journey makes me realize I don't ever want to go back to a a business that owns me way more than I own it. And that's, that's a big challenge, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and sometimes you, there is no easy solution. You, the business is just going to own you for a while and you've got to do what you've got to do. You got to do what the business demands that you do in order to get through those difficult times. And as we were mentioning before, uh, with entrepreneurs, there's, uh, would be many dark, difficult times and, Difficult times where there isn't certainty that it's going to come out to be one of the success stories that you read about. You know, it may be a difficult time that, that just really never gets better. And you don't know that at the time that you're going through it, but you've just got to do what you've got to do. So I, I feel like I've done that and I'm, you know, past that where I do have a strong team, but things could change. And I, I just always want to make sure that. I want to keep moving in the direction where I'm building a team that other people will run the business. And I'm at my age, I'm a current focus of mine is uh, to uh, figure out a a good way to uh, kind of uh, hand the steering wheel to other people and eventually throw them the keys. So I'm, I'm working on that. And I'm fortunate that I have some really excellent people 
that have that uh, ability to transition into that kind of uh, uh, position of running running this business. This journey has cemented the idea that that's the only way I, you know I want to be going forward, and I want to keep moving more in that direction. Yeah, no, I think that's a at least it feels to me like a pretty powerful point. The the idea of you know owning your business and in, in contrast to your business owning you, and and how you you know responsibly take off all the hats that you had to wear as a as the founder and entrepreneur, and and empower the you know, the people around you to, to do that work. That's one, that's one that reminds me of a one thought. We had talked earlier about investing in companies with founders. Yep. And uh, that's one thing I, I like. If I were to start, and I may do it, I've got some ideas of uh, some startup, starting some companies. Uh, and the next company I start will be a SaaS uh, company, most likely. At least that's that's what appeals to me. But when I invest in companies that have a founder, like a David Levine or a Chelsea or Chris Wentz and others, I feel that uh, I don't have to, it's not my problem to worry about keeping a team and, and, and making sure the business doesn't depend on me. That's a given from the start that the business doesn't depend on me to run it. Uh, so that's one of the appealing things that I, uh, instead of me uh, having to build that team and, and worry about losing parts of that team. And when I invest in a, a founder, that's really the founder is uh, taking on that responsibility. And that's quite a, you know, that's quite a thing. I am curious also about the, you know, the impact of these walks on your life writ large, you know, personally, professionally, how have these unique experiences, you know, affected your relationships, you know, both in, in that personal and, and professional context? Yeah, well, the, the, Relationships probably are affected by my walks, but also I, I wouldn't be able to do the walks if I had been married with some young children. I had always thought that I would have gotten married and had a bunch of children. I, I thought I'd get married and have as many children as my wife would uh, allow because I, I think that's great. I love I love uh, little kids, but I never figured out that first part about who to marry. So I, I never did get married and. That and the fact that I, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm my own boss. I didn't have to get permission to go on, go away for four months. I just had to make it possible. So all of that put me in a position where I was able to, to do this. And uh, I feel really fortunate because, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, doing good things, raising a family or maybe, you know, or they have a job and they, they're just, they can't uh, tell their company they're going to leave for that period of time. I feel real fortunate that, my life worked out so that I, I could do that. As far as relationships, I, I'm, I have a girlfriend now and she prefers to, um, me not to go away. She prefers me to always be around, but she, she understands. And she actually went to me, went with me to Portugal and, uh, walked for 10 days on uh, Camino de Santiago. Uh, so she, she, uh, may do that again, go on some short sections of a, of a trip. And, and also my, my journey, my first journey across the U.S. was four months continuous walking. But since then, I'm, you know, I do a month. Most, most I do is a month at a time. And the uh, last trip I did in Spain and France was two weeks. So I can do shorter walks that are, you know, like going away on a business trip or, uh, you know, something like that, family vacation. So I'll, I'll do, uh, continue to do that. And I, I don't see that being a problem with relationships. 
as far as the business, it's difficult to get away even now, even though I have, you know, good people. It's just difficult to get away, but I'm able to make it happen. And I don't ever want to go back to where I can't get away for a week. You know, I can't take a, go a whole year without taking a vacation. I, I'll never go back to that. It's just not where I want to be. And I've already, and this journey helped really cement that in my mind. Now, if I go away for two weeks or a month, it's like I went away on business for two weeks or a month or something like that. Everything, the world can wait. Uh, everything can, you know, nothing really falls apart. And I was actually going to go away and about three weeks ago, I was going to be back in France walking to Italy. And I, but I postponed that trip, uh, two week trip just because the timing was a little too busy. And uh, so I have that kind of flexibility that I can adjust as needed. If someone, was contemplating this kind of, of of journey. You know, they they wanted to experience it for themselves, recognizing you know they'll have not the exact experience, but you know the the essence of it, the the presence, the holistic nature of it. What advice would would you leave? Yeah, well, I would encourage anybody who wanted to do something like this, um, walk the Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail or Camino de Santiago. Or like in my case, just walk across a country. I would, I would really encourage someone to do it because I, I think it's a wonderful adventure. I'd give some advice on, you know, what to pack, but my advice would be to not worry about like, all the, the things that you can't figure out. And, uh, you know, just my advice would be to f- figure out where you want to go, research it, uh, enough to, so you don't miss out on some, you know, big, uh, key information that you could have easily found. So research it, uh, read about what you can to find out what's probably a, a good general route. And then uh, just start, you know, just like in, in business uh, with a startup, you know, figure out where you want to go and roughly how you're going to get there, but then just start. Uh, so that, that would be my advice and, and bring uh just the minimal, just be minimalist. You know, people tend to pack way too much and bring uh, just the minimal that you'll need. And you'll find that you didn't really need the extra clothes, just the extra money. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, it, it's such a, it's such an amazing thing that you've done. And I, I hope at some point in, in my life, I, I can do something similar, but uh, yeah, I really appreciate, you know, you, you sharing more about, about your journey. The traditional closing question that we ask everyone, it feels very small now in the context of this conversation because it's, it's, <laughs> it's just about Cleveland, <laughs> but it's for uh, you know a hidden gem, something that uh, other folks may not know about that they should in our little corner of the world. Yeah, great. Well, a lot of gems in Cleveland. Right next to our office is the Masthead Brewery. I'm, I'm there. We call that our conference room B. <laughs> I'm often there, but it's not very hidden. So the hidden gem that I would like to mention is um, kind of a place and a, a different way to see play, uh, a place in Cleveland. And that is uh, my favorite way to meet people, catch up with a business acquaintance or friend is to go to um, one of our, our local rivers and kayak down the, through the moving water through our, our down a local river, like the Cuyahoga Chagrin or Grand River. I, st- I did that a few years ago and I loved it so much. I have, uh, now I have seven kayaks and, uh, <laughs> anybody that wants to meet me at, um, 
a coffee shop or a, a brewery, uh, I would suggest, hey, instead of sitting on those bar stools, why don't you meet me at uh, Peninsula on the Cuyahoga River and we'll kayak down to Brexville and we can have a, you know, a lot of chat along the way and probably see a few eagles and just, you know, it looks like a completely different world. So I think that's my hidden gem is to see this completely different world that's right here in our area in a unique way. I just love catching up with people that way. So, you know, anybody that wants to join me can reach out and I've got the kayaks. All you have to do is show up. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, in case anyone wants to to take you up on that, Mike, what would be the, the best way for folks uh, to, to get in touch with you? Well, my email address is um, easily found. It's my first initial followed by my last name at smartshape.design. And uh, also LinkedIn is great, uh, great way to connect with people. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. So send me a note any way you can. And uh, love to meet other Cleveland entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs and aspiring uh, hikers and uh, adventurers. Well, I just want to thank you again, Mike. This was amazing. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.